Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Uh, Today I have with me Dr. Brett Dowdy, who is the Chief of Psychological Services at the Lindner Center of Hope. Now, I'll just warn the audience that um, when I get somebody who has more letters after their name than I have in my name, initially you might start to think that you're a little, I feel a little intimidated, right? But I can tell you because I know Brett personally. And uh, he's one of the most down-to-earth and human-centered, caring doctors of psychology you're ever going to want to meet. And, uh, and Dr. Dowdy, and I'm just going to call you Brett, if that's okay for the rest of the show, um, he really directs the psychologists, the neuropsychologists, the therapists, they all provide services uh, throughout the center of the Lender of Hope. And why I wanted to have Dr. Dowdy on today is because so many uh, of us have been going through this season through, through the pandemic. and as we come into the holiday season here, in the midst of the holiday season, we start to think about, especially the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, all of this stuff kind of coming to a head. And I thought it'd be great to have him on for you guys out there listening today, just so he could maybe unpack a little bit of some of the stuff he sees out there, the trends and some of the pitfalls and the potholes that we all get ourselves into, especially during the holiday season or in an undue time of stress that help us maybe get unstuck so we can continue to not only walk in our own purpose, but help others do the same. So, so Brett, I'm honored to have you on, brother. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, the list of accomplishments and education that you have um, is tremendous. And I'm always, I always admire someone who has such a veracity for learning, and you've definitely done that through your career. But my guess is that, you know, maybe that started early on. And so everybody who listens to our show knows we always start with the guest origin story, their why story. So how did you get to be who you are today? Well, good question. I, um, when I think about like why, why psychology, why the, the world of clinical uh, work, it, it was never really the plan early on. I, um, I went to college thinking I would do something more in the medical field um, and then took my first chemistry class and realized I needed a, another alternative. Uh, <laughs> so I just began to seek God. What did he have for me? And um, really the, the turning point was I had an internship, um, in a children's psychiatric hospital and I started working with uh, children who had trauma stories and started to connect with my own trauma story and really felt like the God was leading me here. So my initial plan was, you know, I'll get a master's degree in counseling in a, in the church world and kind of pastoral counseling. It just really felt God saying like to, to do something different that I could work within the church and in with people of faith, but uh, to do it with a secular degree would open more doors. So I began to pursue a doctoral program. Um, and through that really has been kind of my own recovery and my own story with um, recovering from my own trauma, recovering from my own sense of brokenness and hurt and profound shame. And, um, and really the Lord has been powerful to, to show up in really meaningful ways. And the more that I see him do that in my own life, the more I see him do it in my office and show up in ways, even with people who are, who are not looking for a faith oriented uh, psychologist, um, there's power in recovery and, and have 
have just that that's been kind of the heartbeat of what I'm doing here. And the, the Linders have a, had a vision to have a center that had a faith integrated piece. And so I was initially um, hired as the faith integrated psychologist at the center and have been able to do some um, and participate in some really neat projects here, a really powerful opportunity the Linders have created. Yeah, that's great. And, and I, I love that everybody's got a story, right? We don't always get to choose some of our story early on in life mm-hmm. and, and um, yet it, it profoundly impacts um, how we process our story moving forward. And for those out there who maybe are stuck and maybe right now, cause this, you know, this, this is airing in the holiday season timeframe and uh, coming out of this nine months practically of this pandemic, does that, do those seasons of high stress tend to amplify uh, some of that, you know, as we call the junk in the brain truck, the stuff that maybe we've suppressed for years that we really never dealt with? Does that tend to amplify that during seasons like this? Absolutely. So some folks will experience um, in a time of deep stress, they'll actually uh, have a repressed memory come to the surface. So some folks have been, their brain is so adept that it's protected them from even remembering it. And so we can see that come out in stress. But even for those of us who are aware of our trauma and have done a good job of maybe pushing it down, stress, particularly isolation, and COVID-19 has certainly put a lot of people in really isolated environments. And isolation, we know, is a really big risk factor in things like suicide, depression, anxiety. If we look at um, almost every mood disorder, psychiatric condition, isolation is a real problem. So we're seeing a real rise in people struggling, uh, both with old stuff and the newness and the hardship around COVID. It probably kind of adds to the pile, right? So, so you get into overwhelm mode and then something, the dam just breaks right. uh, for, for people. And, um, you know, we work in the, the business community with behavioral change. And sometimes it's around helping our, our whole mission here at Brain Trust is to help individual people communicate with more purpose and more power and more impact. And what we find just on a superficial level when you're out, whether you're in sales or, or leadership or coaching or marketing, is even that most people become so self-absorbed and self-preservation is so rampant because it's our, our, in, our instinct is protectionism, right, of our own selves. And we can't help it. It's at a really rudimentary subconscious level. Um, when you encounter somebody who can, can you can you here's the question, I guess. I've often thought about this with people like with your education and stature. When you meet somebody for the first time, how hard is it for you to not psychoanalyze them? Yeah, people love this question. (laughs) (laughs) My wife uh, is from a Mennonite family up north and her grandmother um, liked me, but didn't want me around too much for fear that I would, you know, be able to read her mind. Right. Um, You know, it's... I think the idea that somehow like I can pick up cues really uh, on little tiny things and know all about you, that that's probably, uh, that's an exaggeration. I wish it were that easy. Um, but it's also not something I can turn on and off. So my brain's always thinking, um, but I enjoy not being at work. Right. And so I'm, I'm not trying too hard outside of the office to, to try to take on that role for people. Okay. Well, that's good. So if you run into Dr. Brett on the street, just know he's not trying to psychoanalyze you. So so what, what are some of, or or you probably see a lot of consistent negative behaviors 
that mm. exhibited. And I, and I don't, you know, without going too far down though, what was the trauma that led to the person's story today? But what are some of the consistent negative behaviors that you see across different subsets of people that keep them stuck in their status quo? Uh, yeah, I would kind of broadly say that we don't, we, we kind of cope in ineffective ways um, based on our story. So we get this ineffective coping um, and it cascades into a lot of other uh, behavioral problems, whether that's addiction, which is certainly worsening during um, COVID, or if it's just relational chaos, because I don't know how to manage my emotion. And um, th- so there's all those pieces that are related to, I don't really know how to cope with my trauma, with my shame, with loss, with loneliness. And lots of us have looked external to ourselves to find coping. So rather than looking at our own coping structure, our own faith, the things that we hold inside of us, we look outside of ourselves. And this has particularly been a problem when we look outside of ourselves and our support systems have been diminished or we're alone. And so then we resort to things that work in the short term, but really complicate our lives in the long term. So when you say someone tends to look outside of themselves, you mean things like you know alcohol or drugs or just d- different external stimulus that they think they're right. using to cope with? Is that what you mean? Right. Yeah, kind of those self-medicators. Right, which don't always have to be alcohol or drugs, right? They could be any number of... Right, shopping, sex, uh, you know, relationships that aren't helpful or productive. But I'm looking, I'm looking for the soothing. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm in distress, I'm hurting, and I want some relief. And these things work in the short term, and that's the problem. With most things that light up the dopamine in our brain that cause us to go you know, that relief that we desperately want, Mm. but that keep us stuck, that keep us in a cycle of dependence. Yeah, that's good. Um, I've got another question. You triggered my my own mind with the dopamine comment. I meant to ask you this earlier. I'll ask it to you now is how has technology affected our brain's wiring Mm. relative to addictions? And are you seeing trends in the younger people um, that maybe we didn't see in, in, in your age, my age, or even you know, the, the early, the older millennials. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pass on the on a good deep neuroscience description here, but I'll, I'll talk more anecdotally about it has complicated lots of things. So I work with a fair number of late adolescents, young adults, and what we see is this kind of pseudo connection. They have, you know, on social media or um, on the internet, they have lots of friends. They have lots of, their network appears to be pretty broad, but it doesn't satisfy the way we were designed to relate, it doesn't actually soothe or connect or prevent them from things like suicide or worsening mental health problems. It actually puts them in an environment where it appears they've got it together. And in reality, it, it doesn't serve as a resource. So they're actually much more vulnerable. So things like social media, um, those things are really putting us at much, much greater risk mm. uh, for mental health issues. And I think we can see it in the younger generation who are um, truly desperate um, to be part of a community. And with COVID, community is tough to find, even if you're looking for it. Yeah, as I can see, it, man, just as a perfect storm, right? And, and we and we always teach how important it is, that personal connection. We're wired for that, right? And we're not wired for, we're wired for community, but we're wired for love and we're wired for mm-hmm. personal connection. We're wired for belonging. We seek all that out because that's where we start to feel purposeful. And when that stuff starts to get removed, or in the case of technology, it's almost a facade that we start to believe for a period of time uh, serves that purpose, but then we find out that it really doesn't. Um, right. 
And I'm wondering as these, the next, you know, I look at my, you know, my kids that are now 20, 15 and seven, I can see a pretty marked difference even in Grace, my oldest at 20 versus Priya, my youngest at seven and how technology has impacted them differently. And it kind of worry as a parent, you know, what is the right balance between making sure they stay connected to real human beings, right? right. Versus uh, the, the advantages technology gives us, which is great, right. but can also be you know, super negative as well at the same time. Our brains really like shortcuts yeah. and easy. And uh, social media is easy. Uh, the internet is easy. Um, and so our brains really, we go for easy. So when I'm doing like a manual labor job, I'm always looking for like, isn't there a tool that will do this for me? Right. Right. And in many ways, the social media has given us the appearance of doing it for us. Yeah. And uh, so we we then lack the skills to do it, but then we lack in a situation where COVID shows up and people are really in a bad spot. We've had to think really creatively, like how do we get people connected to a community in a situation where we're actively trying to avoid being together. Mm. It's, it's been difficult. Yeah. We tell people a lot that the brain is like the highest calorie consumptive organ in the body. So it's right. really always looking for ways to reduce the energy footprint, right? Mm. The brain mm. wants to go green. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll look for those shortcuts and those, and those, those quick answers, which is why the next question I have for you is, and I'll take you back into some of maybe your, your early, earlier education and training when you went through, um, Cognitive bias, yeah. The co- the impact of cognitive biases. Now, as someone who creates messaging and, and we do marketing and, and, and messaging for a for a living, that's what a company does. You know, you can use that for good or evil, right? You can pull that lever. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to human beings and how we're wired, um, what have you learned about cognitive biases relative to how quickly humans will use a bias? By the way, there's something like you maybe can correct me on this, but I, last time I was reading is like 120 some different odd cognitive biases identified. Mm-hmm now in the human brain, but how do cognitive biases play a role in the decisions we make, whether it's personal or professional? Yeah, I, I would say profound impact that most of the time we're um, largely unaware of. Yeah. So our, our brain is, um, it, it, it does have these mechanisms to make mis- uh, decisions and a lot of them are like milliseconds. So it's happening very quickly outside of our awareness. And where I deal mostly with uh, cognitive bias and helping people become more aware of it is more around relationships and um, that we are taking cues from people quite quickly. So if I already have a, a mental health issue or an insecurity that's pretty profound that's causing me to avoid people, I often will misread social cues really quickly that tell me I need to stay away or avoid. And so we're, we're, our, our coaching around this is about how do you do the opposite of kind of what your natural instinct is. So you can, you feel it in your body and you feel the urge even before you're aware of the thought, they don't like me or they don't want me. And so we're getting people to, to resist that or go opposite of some of their biases that keep them isolated, alone, susceptible to depression. How do you balance that with the instinctive biases that are protectionistic to us that right. are good? How do, you, how do you manage that from a counseling standpoint? Yeah, so we know a lot of people who are kind of chronically in a hard spot, like chronically depressed, chronically anxious, they're, they're, they perceive threat a lot of the time. And so they're in like a slight a flight or fight mechanism most of the time. So one of the things we're helping them to do is to take risks, to, to collect data, to experiment a little bit, to like warm up their social signaling uh, because when we are in a state of threat, we also signal in ways that make you run away from me. 
So my face will go flat. I'll be more stern because I'm worried about my safety. Then you read that as my disinterested or my judgment, and then you pull away from me. And so then we've got this vicious cycle of my biases get rewarded or acknowledged or reinforced. And so it takes a lot of courage to get people to break their biases or step out in spite of feeling threat. So I feel threat, but I'm going to like lean into the threat. And that takes a lot of courage and treatment and recovery. Well, it's because I think, gosh, you're going against your own instinctive self-preservation, right? Right. Whether it's cognitive bias or not driven. Um, Was it, I think it was Princeton did a study on trust and it was through facial recognition. And this has been some number of years back. And um, I can't remember the exact, it might've been Hassan. I can't remember who did the research on it, but that subconsciously all the respondents in the study they decided whether to trust somebody or not within the first second mm-hmm. of based strictly on the appearance of the facial expression of the person. Right. Does that jive with you from uh, yeah. what you know to be true about trust? Right. And interestingly, folks who are chronically depressed and anxious, either temperamentally they're born with or over time develop a very flat signal. So their social signal is uh, unresponsive. And so, um, people are reading their cues all the time and backing away from them. So you get that, as I was talking about, you get that double dose. I'm reading you as threatening, but you're reading me as threatening. And so they're stuck. And it reinforces almost that pattern of distrust, right? Right. Wow. Um, I wonder how many times, and maybe because I'm, you know, I'm completely oblivious, but I wonder how many times I have subconsciously misread someone in my own life, right? Where I picked up on something, and didn't even realize it. So, because this is happening at such a subconscious level, right? Yeah, and it's a, it, our bodies tend to experience it before we're consciously aware of it. So, you're reading a signal, and your body is having a reaction. You're more likely to go to someone who has a warm signal, a bright, who's smiling, who's engaged, um, and that the person who might need you the most is the person your body is telling you to get away from because they're a threat. Mm. And it all happens at this kind of um, unconscious or preconscious level of awareness. So everyone that's listening, what Dr. Brett's saying is, is when you see someone who looks like a threat, you're supposed to give them a hug. Yeah, approach that person. <laughs> approach that person with complete, un- unabashed yeah. fervor. <laughs> no. Yeah, you, you, you look like you're suffering. You need a friend. If you could put the weapon down in the, in the, in the Molotov cocktail, I need to give you a hug, right? <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that. We often talk about this metaphor of the sword and the shield. Yeah. Like that folks who are chronically hurting go into social situations with a sword and a shield and they, and they're wondering why aren't people engaging with me? Why aren't people approaching me? Because to them, their sword and shield is invisible too. They, they can't perceive their own social signal. And so we're teaching them to intentionally alter their social signal so that the, the Japs of the world who are engaging and feel pretty upbeat will also see them as someone who's safe and approachable. Yeah, that's uh, that's good because I know for me, my like my son who's 15, he has a completely different personality th- than I do. And he does have a, a very stoic, right. natural, and, and, I, and he's processing everything, right, differently than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I were to meet him on the street, I wouldn't connect with him. Right. I would probably avoid him and vice versa. I'd, I'd probably overwhelm him right. if he met me on the street, right? And so he wouldn't connect. And yet both of us, because we have a father-son relationship, we know each other. And so we trust each other and we love each other. And we have a lot of fun together. But I wonder how many relationships we've missed out on right. for one way or the other, right? We, those of us who are more outgoing and, and a little happy-go-lucky misjudge somebody because of their affect 
and they look at us as overwhelming and frightening. <laughs> yeah. Introverts often get um, judged as like uh, being arrogant or judgmental or disinterested, um, which is often very far from the truth. Um, they just signal in a very different way. Well, if I talk to you, though, and you seem disinterested, then it must be true because you have to be interested in what I'm talking about. Right, right. Because if you think it, it has to be true, right? <laughs> okay, so we talk a lot about, um, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but I know how important you know, neurochemistry is relative to, you know, there's your natural default neurochemistry and what your brain is producing, but then there's also when you take in the senses and you process environments and information, it tends to modulate different levels of neurochemistry. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is how to create more positive interactions, which elicits oxytocin, right? It's been studied a lot. And, but then the stress of cortisol can really flood the system and, and almost counterbalance that in situations. So in your research and in what you've studied over the years, how much of our neurochemistry is within our control versus, no, it's really the, the event that we're experiencing is going to dictate how the brain produces different types of neurochemistry, whether it's dopamine, oxytocin, cortisol, all of these factors yeah. that determine our behavior in a moment. So I think a lot about uh, temperament and temperament is kind of, that's what we're born with. That's our style, our personality. And um, that is, um, we can modify that. We can shape it. It takes a good amount of work. And then we have things like brain chemistry and kind of all the, the pieces that you're commenting on that, we now know that the brain is uh, changeable at an organic level. And we used to think that like it's fixed, like this is your brain chemistry, your, this is what's going on in your head and you're kind of stuck with it. But we now know that things like um, skills training, like if I can teach, if you give me a year, I can teach you to cope in a way that your brain will organically be different at the end. Um, but it is still going to be influenced by your natural set, whether that's kind of biochemical or temperamental set. Uh, we can't we can't dramatically change those, but we can influence them, and we can make some real life long lasting changes over time. Yeah, it's funny because what we found is that you know if you want to really connect with someone, obviously storytelling is a great way to do that. And if you if you're able to communicate in a, in a very specific way with another human being, mm. you can drive up oxytocin. They can't control it. It's just the natural response to you is right. this person feels safe. They sound safe. I think I like them. I believe I trust them. Naturally, oxytocin goes up. But conversely, I can walk in after work today. I can I can drop my bag and start, you know, screaming at the the kids and my wife, and I can spike everyone's cortisol till it's coming out of their ears and just put in, them into distress. And so, how how important is it that the words we use and our intention behind how we communicate? Not we tell people a lot of times is you have more power than you think you do at the neurochemistry of those around you. Yep. So we're all pretty sensitive to things like tone of voice. We all will get a threat signal. Some of us are super sensitive to those kind of things. So some people, it kind of rolls off temperamentally, personality. It's like, yeah, I, I mean, I feel the rise, but I can ride it. And other people, when that when those rises come, they're, they're flooded, they're overwhelmed. Um, and so I think it's also important to be sensitive to like who, who is in your audience. So in your family, you may have a mix of people who can ride the wave uh, of your presence, or if you're having a hard day and you have others that might do a total shutdown, might be, feel like an internal collapse. And interestingly, those people may not socially signal anything different, which makes it hard. Mm. So that your son, for instance, might 
be internally really struggling with your tone or your presence, but externally look like never let them see you sweat. I'm fine. It looks okay. Right. Yeah, that is him. So I need to hug him while I'm yelling at him is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. And he'll be, (laughs) no, you just, you just gave me a thought that something you said, I'm going to coin this and tell my team that they just need to learn how to ride the wave of my presence. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be my new motto. Everyone needs to learn how to ride the wave of my presence. No. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? Some people will ride with you. Like it's like your energy will pick some people up and will slow others. Other people will see it as a threat. And uh, it's interesting. And there, some, almost all of that is temperament. That's how we came out of the womb. Yeah. Wow. It's, just, it's crazy too, because I would say on a, on a scale of, of one to 10 with self-awareness, uh, we're all on a continuum, I'm sure. Right. Uh, but I bet you I'm lower than I think I am. <laughs> right. When, when you're commuting, cause I just assume, because I, I come in the room with energy. Like when I wake up in the morning, I'm just, I'm on, I'm on, I've got lots of energy and you should just join in with me. Right. I probably miss cues from people that may, that, that, that energy might be shutting them down when I think I'm lifting them all up together. Right. And so for leaders, leaders that are listening today, depending on your temperament and depending on how you, what your natural default setting is, my, my, mine is energy. Right. But that may not be the best setting for my team. So how, how do you recommend leaders out there think about their default temperament and then how they can keep it a little bit more neutral for a team that might be balanced between theirs and other temperaments? Right. Especially if you're communicating to the whole team at once. If it's individual, you can tailor yourself a little bit. Yeah. So if you know, okay, I'm talking to Brett today and he's going to do better if I stay a little lower as opposed to Jim, who's going to get enthused and I'm going to I'm going to turn him on to go do some great, great work today. I think as a, as a group, it's like, how do I manage? How can I move between these two? I think the risk is, is that we attract people who are like us so that your team might look a lot like you. And then there's strengths to that, but you might also as a leader want to like, I want like a broader mix of styles and temperaments. And so I have to be able to speak to nurture, manage, because managing someone who's a little more like your son looks pretty different than managing someone who looks like you. Yeah, there's no, no, no question about that. We talk about that as a team as well, because we do have a pretty decent mix of styles. Um, those who've done the Enneagram yeah, out there listening, yeah. we have very different balance of that. And Strength Finders is another good one we've done. Mm-hmm. But I think what I've learned, and I don't very you know, execute it all the time, but what we tell a lot of our clients, Brett, is, is that you have to fight your own default setting for self-preservation because most of us enter every conversation from the setting of self-preservation. Right. And if I really do truly care about making an impact and a difference on the world and those around me, then I need to enter every conversation with their perspective in mind because that should change and dictate how I communicate with that particular person or that group. Um, do you have any tips for us on how we can focus our mindset on others when we're just biologically not wired to do that? Right. Yeah, I remind myself and others like we're all insecure, right? And I think people might like uh, see a, ta- a presenter like you, Jeff, and say, well, he, he probably doesn't have much insecurity. His confidence is super high. But all of us bring insecurity into every interaction, um, even if we're extroverted and outgoing and generally confident. And so being being aware when I'm talking to the person like, is their insecurity being activated by me? Mm. Am I doing something that 
pulls them up out of that and gets them motivated and feeling confident and able? Or is there something about what I'm doing that actually, even though I'm my best efforts are to motivate, might actually be demotivating? Because mm. a lot of what we do that we think is motivating, like cheerleading, you know, the research would say is actually a pretty demotivating activity for a lot of people. Mm. Because cheerleading evokes ambivalence, right? Say more about that. So if, if you tell me... Yeah, like um, most of us are ambivalent. So if we're trying to take on change, we feel two ways about it. It's like, I want to do that really powerful change behavior, but I'm also afraid. And fear is really the core issue, not resistance. But like, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I won't succeed or I won't be good. I won't, I, I, I won't be able to do it. And so when you cheerlead, like you can do it, Brett, you're awesome. Go get them. It's like, you're also talking to part of me that's afraid. And so it's better to evoke from me like, what do you think would help you get there, Brett? What do you need to to hear from me about what motivates me as opposed to like, I'm going to tell you all the reasons I think you're awesome might actually make me more anxious. It might feel like pressure mm. rather than he believes in me. That means I can do it. And so cheerleading is also often a behavior that doesn't actually work. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really quite thought about that way. When most of us who are default cheerleaders, we think we're being motivated when we're you know, you know, scaring the, you know, what out of our, our, our people or the person we're talking to, because then they feel like they're either not going to be able to accomplish what they, that we think they, they can do, or that they're going to let us down or they're going to fail. Wow. There's a lot that goes into that. Now, when you said fear there, I think it was Dr. Henry Cloud that said, we tend to change when the pain of staying the same becomes greater mm-hmm. than the pain of change. Yep. Um, what's the balance as a leader, as a parent, as a coach, to helping someone realize that where they are today has to be worse than where they might go if they take a chance of doing something different and painting the picture. Cause you know, we, we know that in Kahneman's work, he found that people are twice as urgent will change at twice the urgency to avoid a loss as they will to pursue a gain. And, and that's the behavioral economist work. So take it for what it's worth, but how do you balance that helping as a parent, a coach, a doesn't matter, a leader, of making someone see that where they're at today is not as productive. In fact, it's twice as harmful as where they might go if they take a chance to do something different. Yeah, great point. So pain can be a real good motivator. Um, However, if you tell me like, hey, Brad, here are all the things that are going to happen if you don't change and you go through the list, it probably will be a demotivating moment. It would be more powerful if you could say, Brett, like there's this thing coming, like things are changing. What do you, what do you think it's going to cost you if you don't change? Mm. If I can hear myself talking about change, the, the literature calls this change talk. If I can hear myself talking about change, then that's predictive that I'll actually change more, that I'm, I'm more likely to actually make the change than if I hear you talking about it. And then that gets into where cognitive biases can be your friend, right? Because then the choice supportive bias kind of kicks in and I'm choosing to change versus feeling like you're trying to make me change. Right. But you said something important there, though, you, I want the audience to miss. Rather than tell you what you stand to lose if you don't change, I need to ask you some really insightful questions to let you come to that discovery on your own right. of the cost of staying the same. And then maybe help paint a picture of a future state that might you might benefit from and let you choose to go that direction. Is that right? Yeah, or even better, let me paint it. So we call it evoking in psychotherapy. I'm going to evoke from the other person what it is they want, how they're going to get there, and what it, what's the payoff. And again, if I step into the role of evoking, like, let me tell you, Jeff, what's going to happen here. If you don't make this change, uh, I'm, I'm risking demotivating. Even on the other side, even if I tell you what you will gain, if you do change, does the same principle apply? It, it, if you tell me the positives 
it, well, it partially depends on where I'm at in my headspace. So if I'm ambivalent, but I'm more fear than motivation, then I'm going to be, I'm going to be easier to tip towards demotivated. I got you. And better to evoke from me um, kind of what, what I think it, what I think it could, what's the payoff, what it could be. I got you. Okay. That's, it's fascinating because uh, to me, human behavior and behavioral change and psychology, and now that the, you know, the neuroscience is catching up with a lot of what we've known intuitively through psychology, and then you throw in a little bit of pixie dust of, of physiology, mm-hmm. and you can start to really see yeah. how we're designed, first of all, so uniquely. Yeah. Um, but also, it only takes a little bit to trip somebody up and put them in a, in a hole, it seems like. Yeah. I like, uh, are you familiar with uh, Prochaska and DiClemente stages of change model? No, no. It's uh, they basically, uh, they talk about uh, the stages of pre-contemplation. These are people who don't even know that they need to change, right? Uh, contemplation. I think I can see uh, something's not quite right. Preparation is like, I'm starting to plan the change and then action is I'm doing it. Hmm. And then maintenance, I do it over time. Well, in psychotherapy, and this might be true in uh, organizational leadership and motivation, we we intervene as if everybody's in the action stage. Okay. So people come to psychotherapy, we just assume, oh, you're ready for change. Here's how you do this. Right. And in reality, only about 10% or so are in that stage of change. That most people even come to therapy in like a contemplation preparation stage. And these folks are really easy to tip into fear. It's very easy to overwhelm these folks to outpace them. And so even in psychotherapy, we have to, all the stuff we know to help people get there, we have to like put it on pause and we have to go back to motivational stuff. What's getting in your way? What do you want? What are your goals? How can you get there? We have to get people to a place that they can do the hard work of recovery. Mm. You know, it's not so different than as I was hearing you talk, you know, we deal with a lot of small business owners and salespeople in large corporations, and they're trying to get a customer to change. They actually go in assuming the customer's ready to change. <laughs> right. When 90% of the time they are not, right? They are stuck in their own status quo for a reason. Yep. Um, so there's not that, um, and I don't, I don't mean to make it sound like someone who's stuck in a depression run has the same conversational skills necessary than a customer conversation, but it's still human behavior, right? Right. The change process, these probably overlap a great deal. I love, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we had Dr. BJ Fogg on out at Stanford and he's done a ton of work around change. And he came up with the the change activation model and he's got a mm-hmm. tiny habits program now, but his initial principles in his research was change was a factor of motivation over ability. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, on the X axis is, you know, how motivated are you? And on the Y axis, sorry, the other way around. Um, how hard or easy is the change to take place? And at some point, you could be low motivation. If you are, and there's a curve, then you got to have high, it has to be super easy to do. Right. Or you can be really high, highly motivated. It could be a little harder and you'll, and you'll do it. And it's over time, similar concept, right? Because awareness was the precursor though. Mm-hmm. You even have an awareness to, the, you know, to your point, the pre-contemplation piece. Yeah. So as we kind of start to land the plane a little bit here, when you think about all the different variables people are struggling with right now in the holiday season. What are a couple, two or three, just general coping skills, mechanisms you can encourage people to use this holiday season, whether it's that they're not able to meet together as they thought they would, or who knows what the, what the deal is, but they're all, you know, a lot of people are dealing with a lot of stuff here. So not everything applies to everybody. Right. But what are two or three, maybe just general coping, self-awareness coping skills that I could pretty easily adopt if I'm listening? I think the the skill I would say um, 
could apply maybe to the broadest audience is a skill called opposite action. And if we think about um, when we're feeling down or depressed, it has urges that come with it. So when I'm depressed, I want to withdraw, crawl into bed. When I'm anxious, I want to I want to avoid and escape. And in opposite action, you start to disobey the urges that come naturally with that mood state. So you become pretty rebellious against depression, anxiety, fear, mm. and you do the opposite. So if the urge is to crawl into bed, then I do something that looks different. So I can do really big opposites. I can go for a run, but that's an opposite that large is pretty hard to do when you're genuinely depressed. So you think about what are small opposites, what are small acts of disobedience you can do. So rather than lay down, I might sit on the couch or call a friend um, or do um, something creative, or I might, um, I might do something that just gets me out of my head. I might read a book or watch a movie. So I would encourage people, if you can identify what is the problem urge, um, disobey it. Disobey the urge that might be keeping you stuck. That's that's uh, so simple, but yet I bet you it's very profound. So the first step, though, is I need to identify what is my go-to. Right. When, when I feel X, I tend to Y. Right. And then once I've identified Y, I tend to crawl in the bed or I tend to eat a gallon of ice cream or what, you know, right. whatever the Y is. And then you're saying then now knowing that's your default or a series of a couple of defaults, mm-hmm. think of two or three things you can immediately do when you feel that way. That's the opposite right. end of that. Wow. That's, that's and interestingly saying I'm going to do opposite action. Just that, I'm, especially if I can say it out loud, it just increases the likelihood I am going to do it. So it's like, it's awareness, right? It's bringing to my awareness that this urge is dragging me towards stuck. And I'm going to, I'm saying out loud, I'm going to do the opposite. And it starts to train your brain over time. Like in the presence of depression, I disobey. Because depression, for instance, is our enemy. Yeah. A liar and a thief, right? But it's uh, it's got its own gravitational pull, as do most problematic behavioral issues or emotional problems. And I'm, I'm just going to develop a pattern of disobedience. And that, that, that applies across the board, doesn't it? Like, yeah. it doesn't have to be just something as deep as, as depression. Any, any kind of unproductive behavior that you have a consistent pattern of, and once you've recognized it and identified it, is doing that. Okay, that's a good one. You got another one? Taking notes now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's another one. Um, I think the other one is, um, we call it radical acceptance. So how can I radically accept what is real or true? Not like it or approve of it, but acknowledge, okay, like this is a real problem in my life. So how can I radically accept that X behavior is standing in my way? And radical acceptance is often the real first step to recovery. So I have to acknowledge it and make peace with it. Some things though, we use radical acceptance for can't easily be changed. So when you're in pain, but you don't want to suffer, use radical acceptance. So the pain might be a chronic pain. It might be like this very real um, thing. So my arm is broken and I focus on how much it hurts. My experience of the pain goes up. Pain doesn't actually go up. My experience does. And if I acknowledge like, yes, my arm hurts and I'm going to engage with Jeff, Um, then my experience of pain can go down. And sometimes we're stuck, even with COVID, like there's some things we need to radically accept about what our life is going to look like for the next year. And we need to find some way to just accept the reality so that we can let other good things in. Because our internal rumination and all that pain we engage in, all the suffering, all the whys, all the it's not fair, all the desperation, the fear, um, it can really block us from taking a step forward. Okay. Those are two really, really good ones. 
Um, you mean like with COVID. So we have to accept the fact that even though we have a killer world-class beard like you do, you still have to wear a mask, even though it covers up your killer world-class beard. Yeah, you, you got to get mask <laughs> beard regularly. Uh, well, these are really, really helpful. And I think, and I know my audience out there is listening is, you know, we, we have lots of different guests on. And this is, this is one that I think that we're talking about it from just a strict human behavioral standpoint about how people, you know, get stuck. What I think happens that I've seen happen is, is people though in their mind compartmentalize, these are my personal issues and I won't, I don't carry them over here into my professional setting, but that's impossible. Right. And I think that all of these things at a human level, if we can open up that, that, that brain trunk and unpack that junk and start to figure out ways of mm -hmm. dealing with a lot of the things that are preventing us from our purpose personally, they will naturally affect us positively in our professional setting and our other relationships. Would you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Do you have any final parting words of, of wisdom from Dr. Brett? Yeah, I know this won't apply to all your listeners, but the research is really clear that people of faith, um, that faith, things like prayer, these, they actually activate recovery and the people of faith get better quicker and stay, stay better. They can maintain their changes. And a lot of times we try to do these things on our own. We try to, in our own strength and in our own power and, we have a great power source. Um, and I would encourage people, don't forget to activate the power of the Holy Spirit in your life um, to, to let faith be activated in your recovery. And whether you're at work or you're in a therapist office or you're struggling at home because you're, you're feeling pretty isolated, you don't have to do it alone. That's great. And, I, and it's funny you say that because we had Dr. Tony Jack on last month and he's done a ton of work in the neuroscience realm. And I don't think he expected to find just how impactful the spiritual component of even the neuroscience research was to people in their behaviorals and their positivity and their mindsets and all that. But now the, the science has, has gotten to the point now where all it's doing is validating right. this, this spiritual faith-based realm that many of us have known for, for a large portion of our lives. So it's a great, great way to end. So thank you for what you do um, for our community here in the Cincinnati area, the lives that you impact and change. And thank you for the lives you impacted and changed on our podcast from listeners all over the world today. We appreciate you have, having you on. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Appreciate it. You're welcome. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain -brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.